President Xi Jinping has earned his mark in the Chinese history, being the very decisive leader in fighting off waves of waves of corruption in the party, in the military, in the government. At a conservative estimate, China's zero COVID policy has saved the lives of four million people in China. This is why the accusations of the United States about human rights, um, China trying to lecture it, are absolutely ridiculous. You only have to be in a country like mine to see many, many, many older people, people with disabilities, etc., are very worried to go out because they know that COVID is around the situation. The CPC's key advantages include superior organization and discipline. We look at the past 10 years, we look at how other countries have, have struggled and faltered and, and indeed failed, although we've had some setbacks in terms of uh, having to deal with the pandemic and extreme weather and, and other challenges in China, uh, China has continued to move forward. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Hello and welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun, joining our discussion on what to expect at the upcoming 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party of China are John Ross, Senior Fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University. And Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. Nice having you all on the show, gentlemen. So nearly 2,300 delegates from across the country are in Beijing to attend the twice-a-decade National Congress of the Communist Party of China, which kicks off on Sunday. As all eyes are on the 20th CPC National Congress, in this episode, we will look at what to watch for at this meeting. But before we dive into that part, let's get a rough understanding of um, how the party operates. So, Victor, let me start with you. Obviously, the CPC, um, according to China's constitution, is the ruling party of the country. And there are a lot of reports that the party makes decisions and runs the country through collective uh, leadership. But do the 2,000 plus delegates you know, selected from the country's 90 million party members form the collective leadership? In other words, how does it work and what's the mechanism? Thank you very much for having me. Uh, CPC, or the Communist Party of China, is the largest political party in the world. Mm. It was founded 101 years ago in 1921, and its membership runs almost all the way up to about 100 million. So, in a sense, this is truly a mountain mover in China. You see CPC members almost everywhere in the government, in the military, and in many enterprises, for example. And CPC really decides on major policies for the country and executes a lot of these decisions mm. and mobilizes the whole society in China to execute the decisions which are meant to make the Chinese people richer and wealthier, improving their living standards, as well as to achieve the ultimate goal of what we call rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So the 20th Party Congress 
is one of the most important political events in our times because the party congress, which normally takes place every five years, and uh, for 10 years, for example, normally you will have major reshuffling of the top party members and leadership roles, for example. And for this 20th party congress, we expect there will be major changes in personnel. There will be also rededication to reform and opening to the outside world. And really, reorienting China in the direction of uh, achieving higher level of modernization and also higher level of globalization. So everyone is expecting a major success for this 20th Party Congress. You mentioned about 2,000 people attending this Congress. Mm. Uh, Generally speaking, there are about 250 official members, another 250 or so alternate members, and then you have party elderlies, senior uh, leaders, retired leaders, etc. So to have 1,000 people more or less gathered together under the one roof to talk about all the major issues China is faced with will really achieve the goal of reorienting China and the whole party in the direction of continued reform and opening to the outside world. Mm, but uh, what's the role of this uh, Politburo and this... Um standing committee well you know the cpc's membership runs all the way up to about 100 million and they are hierarchically structured and the cpc central committee which is the main decision-making body for the cpc uh, is composed of roughly about 250 members and as i mentioned another 250 or so alternate members and out of the central committee they constitute a plebeiro which now is composed of 25 members. And then out of the Politburo, you have this standing committee of the Politburo. Right now is composed of seven members. So this is the structure of the top leadership of CPC. And through the Politburo standing committee and the central committee, the CPC really penetrates throughout the country in all corners of life, in all walks of life, Mm -hmm. and mobilizes the Chinese nation for the very daunting task of continued reform and continued opening to the outside world to make sure that China remains a force for peace and stability and continuing economic growth for the benefit of the Chinese people and mankind as a whole. When we say collective leadership, um, does it mean... Or does it refer to, you know, the Central Committee of the Politburo or, you know, all uh, decisions go to that committee and uh, the highest um, decision or directions go down from that committee to the lower levels? Well, you know, in China, we have 31 provinces, autonomous regions and municipalities directly reporting to the state council. In each of these provincial units, there is a party committee. And then literally in almost all department of government, all state-owned enterprises, and increasingly in many private-owned enterprises, all universities, schools, and throughout the military, there are party committees, party branches, for example. And these are really the executional tools to make sure that the decisions made by the Central Committee, by the Politburo, will be executed. Mm -hmm. However... When you talk about the whole structure, yes, it is really a very hierarchical structure. And 
the Politburo, its Standing Committee and the Central Committee at large are the top decision-making uh, bodies for this largest political party in the whole world. Right, I got a you know a rough idea, and uh, let me turn to John. I understand in Britain, uh, the ruling Conservative Party has just held its um, annual conference. So, can you tell us if there is any difference or, or similarity between the two in terms of how they operate? Well, it would be a bit unfair to make a comparison to the Why? recent Conservative Party conference, which uh. was totally chaotic, even by their normal standards, with the members of the government denouncing each other in public and making statements which led to crashes on the market. So I think that would be unfair to make a comparison because almost anything would be better than that. But let's t- let's take a more normal functioning, sure. say, Conservative Party conference, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the decisive difference is that the CPC takes decisions which then have to be carried out. It's the government of China. Mm-hmm. These decisions will either be correct or they will be wrong, and they are carried out in a disciplined fashion, as uh, Victor explained. Okay. In in the question of the Conservative Party or any of the British parties, for that matter, what is normally happen is that a lot of statements are made which are hot air quite a lot of them are lies the government then doesn't government sell it's not the norm that the government is elected on one position and then doesn't carry it out when it's an office and uh, these uh, parties are mainly for making sort of uh, propaganda and speeches rather than for making decisions because actual fact the fundamental decisions aren't taken through the party conferences In the Labour Party, for example, it's notorious that the parliamentary party almost always disregards any decisions made by the party conference, which it doesn't like. So there's no real democratic control at all. Um, Whereas the CPC, the Congress decides the leading bodies and forces and we know who's responsible for what. So it's really like chalk and cheese. I mean, I'm quite sure if uh, Joseph, you agree with that or probably you can try to compare how the CPC works with with that of uh, the two party, the two major parties in the states. Well, I largely agree with a lot of what uh, Victor and John have said. I will note a few differences uh, as I discuss it in the context of the United States, but, mm. but also as I understand how the system works in China. But uh, overall, the Chinese political system is described today as functioning uh, as a whole process democracy. Yeah. And what we know is that there are many different uh, instrumental means for ensuring the the intrinsic value of democracy is achieved. Uh, And some of these instrumental practices are more obviously democratic than others, but overall they are designed to work uh, systematically to produce democratic outcomes like clean and effective governance, containing the outbreak and leading recovery, uh, raising hundreds of millions out of uh, poverty uh, and eliminating extreme poverty altogether, uh, ensuring security and sovereignty and pursuing foreign policies that seek uh, democratic practices in international affairs, Mm -hmm. uh, like uh, true multilateralism and win-win development initiatives. Now, within the party itself, there are direct and indirect elections, political consultations, and the principles of democratic centralism uh, centralism and uh, Leninist discipline. In other words, there are mechanisms that ensure that people's needs and voices are heard, that policymaking reflects these, and that deliberations include negotiations and consensus building, but likewise, 
when decisions are reached, that they are implemented, that they're executed, and that people are held accountable to ensure that uh, the policies are, are uh, able to achieve their maximum effect. And if they're not, then policies are reformed or people are held accountable for not doing a good job. Now, if we contrast this with the United States, uh, we all know, for example, that the U.S. functions as a two-party federal system with the separation of powers between and within the federal and state levels. Mm. The national government has specific rights and responsibilities, and separately, the state governments have specific rights and responsibilities. Uh, and there's sometimes uh, quite a bit of friction and competition between the states and the national level. And of course, within each level, there's a separation of power between the executive, legislative, and judicial branches that serve to limit and provide critical oversight of each other. And then, of course, we have the two main parties that compete in direct elections for leadership positions and so on. But the key point I want to make here is that both countries try to achieve a functional democracy yep. that can in turn uh, produce good governance and policymaking, satisfying the needs and wants of the people. Uh, but the instruments they use to achieve these goals are quite different. And so are the outcomes, which, you know, we've seen this incredible historic rise, this monumental increase in wealth and security and, and well-being in China, while we've seen the United States really faltering and by some estimates in steep decline. The only thing that I would add, and I know that Victor probably meant to say this as well, when, when you ask specifically about collective leadership, mm -hmm. it's, it's true, as Victor noted, that there is this hierarchy and this top-down approach. And sometimes we see the top-down approach in a stronger mode but it, it's also true that collective leadership includes different perspectives and opinions within the standing committee. And these are a condensed representation of different perspectives and values in the Politburo, which are themselves reflecting the key political voices and, and values in the central committee. So, you know, it's really just a mechanism for trying to, to get these major stakeholders and, and positions so that they can help shape policy that reflects uh, at the highest level the broadest possible interest. Mm. Then, uh, Joseph, what advantages, if there are any, um, do you see in the CPC model or in the U.S. model? Well, I think the CPC's key advantages include superior organization and discipline. I think it's fair to acknowledge, given the privileged position they hold in the Constitution, that they lack effective competition. But many scholars point to, and, and these even include uh, scholars whose names I won't name, who, who perpetually criticize and take hostage against China. They, they acknowledge China's tremendous capacity for adaptation and reform, as well as uh, outcome-oriented uh, legitimacy. Do you see any disadvantages? You know, I think, honestly, the biggest disadvantage that we see in China is uh, this incredible capacity, these incredible advantages that they have, these incredible capacities that they hold. We find them sometimes taking too much responsibility, you know, to the point where they overburden themselves, but also, you know, are, are constantly pushing the nation forward at, in ways that can be difficult for others to keep up, including themselves. Mm -hmm. And this creates, you know, a certain type of vulnerability. It, you know, while you can fully leverage your strengths, you're also, you know, always uh, running full tilt. And, and, you know, there's always this concern about whether or not that can be sustained. But also, you know, whether or not some scholars would say, you know, that, that uh, for example, in, in the United States, most people don't 
depend on government to do much of anything at this point. I mean, they, they're frustrated because government's ineffective and uh, that it doesn't take responsibility. And of course, there are people who enjoy that because they like to exploit a system where they have dominance. But nevertheless, you know, sometimes uh, if a political system takes too much responsibility, it can um, suppress the extent to which uh, society is able to solve its own problems um, external to government involvement. It's like a double-edged sword. Uh, Do you agree, Victor, or what's your intake? Well, first of all, philosophically speaking, I think the circumstances, the challenges, the opportunities, the natural endowments of countries like China versus the United States are so different. Therefore, it is only natural to see that the two systems and the way of doing businesses, the way of getting the society organized one way or another, will not be identical, will be very, very different. Mm -hmm. That leads to the conclusion I have. That is, for whichever country in the world, they need to come up with a system that takes care of its special circumstances. What works for you may not work for me, and what works for me may not work for the others. Mm. And that also leads to a third conclusion, that countries need to respect each other. Not only they are different, uh, they are very diversified, and whatever they do to get themselves organized will need to suit the circumstances of that particular country. On these conditions, I would say the two political systems in China versus the United States are very, very different. And comparing these two systems in abstract mm. actually do not help solve a lot of problems. We really need to go one or two steps much deeper into the analysis, meaning what does the system in the United States, you know, what's the origin, what's the evolutionary history, what's the main tasks they are meant to solve, and what's the future for that system? Whatever that system is, I think it is up to the American people to decide whether they want to continue with that, to modify that, or to reform that. And it's the same case for China. China's circumstances, for example, China is prone to major earthquakes. And China historically has been prone to the bursting of the banks of the Yellow River. Natural disasters, almost unheard of in the United States. Therefore, historically speaking, the Chinese nation tend to be more collective and the central government need to concentrate more powers because we need the concentration of power to deal with all these unprecedented natural disasters. Mm -hmm. Further, if you look at China versus the United States, China has about 14 land neighboring countries. And we have been here for thousands of years and historical relations are complicated Uh, current circumstances are very complicated. China needs to have a philosophy and a way of doing business and a way of dealing with the neighboring countries very, very different from the United States. After all, the United States only has Mexico to its south and Canada to its north. It's a very simple and very unprecedentedly advantageous uh, system. In that sense, I would say, China need to constantly focus on its own circumstances and fine-tune the tools to make sure that we are well-equipped to deal with the challenges China is faced with. And I would also urge people in the United States to really focus on their own system, how they can refine the tools to solve the problems facing the United States. But it will be folly for the United States to try to impose its system and its way of doing business on China. 
And it will be folly for China to do the same thing to the United States. All of us need to respect each other and all of us need to refuse to be complacent and constantly on the move in refining our own way of doing things, our own system, and to make sure that we will always be ready to serve the fundamental interests of our own people better. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. After we have this um, brief introduction or understanding of how CPC works here in China, we need to move on to the part what we are expecting for the next um, five years. But before that, let's take a look back to the 10 years, because, you know, studying history helps us um, understand how past events unfolded and how um, that influences present day situations. So, John, wondering, what's your overall evaluation of um, CPC's um, performance over the past decade and what the CPC did over the past 10 years impressed you most? Well, overall, it's a period of tremendous achievement. The China's enjoyed the fastest increase in average living standards of any major country. Uh, China has completed the elimination of absolute poverty. I think that's a tremendous achievement because really how the well-being of society is not really judged by looking at the people who are best off within the society. They Mm. normally do quite well anyway in any country. The situation is best judged by looking at the the situation of average citizens and in particular the poorest and China's made tremendous um, achievements in that. China's life expectancy has continued to go up. This is very striking given the COVID epidemic which has struck countries. There is a a disaster taking place in the United States where life expectancy has actually fallen Mm. for the last two years and more than one million people have died from COVID, whereas in China, mainland, only slightly over 5,000 people have died from COVID and life expectancy um, has continued to go up. Things which these are totally striking. If you look at things which are fundamentally important but not don't necessarily catch attention so much the development of china is the most important green energy producer in the world china has revolutionized the ability globally incidentally to have renewable energy and cut out fossil fuels by its manufacturing prowess in solar panels uh, wind turbines and other types of things and mm. this is vital because the climate change is a threat to the whole of humanity and then in the field of foreign policy I'm particularly impressed by the China's foreign policy and the concept of the common destiny of humanity because we're in a period of course unfortunately where the United States has engaged in some rather reckless activities uh, under the Trump regime. And then really what is behind the war in Ukraine is the eastern expansion of NATO, and these have destabilized the world. So China's foreign policy concepts and foreign policy doesn't attach the same type of spectacular attention that poverty elimination does, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless, it's fundamentally important. And I could go on, but these enough already to outline the Basically, the last 10 years have been a period of outstanding success, and so I could add a few more. And Joseph, your take here? Yeah, I agree with most of what John has said, but I think that the first thing to mention, of course, the thing that really makes a lot of this possible is the anti-corruption campaign. They allowed the party to have a long overdue rectification to sort of clear the boards and uh, regain both its capacity and public trust so that it could really take some bold steps forward. But yes, uh, eliminating extreme poverty, 
achieving the Xiaokong Society uh, Development Goal last year, you know, which includes 400 million middle-income earners. The Green Development Initiative, as John mentioned, um, becoming a global leader, not only in renewable energy and, and green technology, but being a consistent uh, international voice, you know, instead of the United States under Trump, which pulled out of the Paris Agreement, and um, uh, Biden, which has come back into it, but at the same time increased frictions to the point with China, where the two countries are no longer cooperating on climate change. I think, you know, that this is a, a major issue, of course, but um, we also have had uh, the rural development uh, programs, you know, that aim to ensure, as one party secretary in a prefecture in Hunan said to me, ensuring that the rural areas were both green and red, the economic reforms that we've seen, that they haven't really been able to uh, advance as quickly as, as we'd hoped because of the U.S. instigated trade war and the slowdowns associated with COVID. But uh, the dual circulation policy is clear-sighted and will, I think, uh, gain traction as well as, I, I hope, SOE reform. But one of the biggest things that none of us have, uh, have mentioned in the direct sense has been the, the zero COVID policy. And I know that a lot of people, you know, are, are tired of it. I'm certainly tired of it in certain senses. But the likely the millions of lives that have been saved by that policy. And, and you know, we, we look at what happened in the U.S. Uh, uh, again, uh, John mentioned a million dead, more than a million dead in the U.S. from COVID and, and still several hundred dying every day from it. But uh, estimates of uh, blood surveys show that somewhere around 70 to 80 percent of all Americans have been infected and that somewhere around 20 percent of these are having long COVID, including uh, cognitive decline, significantly increased risk for early Alzheimer's. So if we had seen that hit China, which you know already has a population that is trending elderly, that has uh, significant divides uh, between uh, rural and, and urban areas in terms of access to health care, we could have had a, a catastrophe. Uh, so this achievement um, has been a major contribution, not only to China's well-being, but to, to human rights in, in, in every sense of the word. And uh, John mentioned the, the rising health life expectancy in China, how, how the U.S. position has now dropped lower than China. And that's true. Uh, but the other thing to note is, you know, we've seen all this negative press internationally about uh, China's position in uh, Hong Kong. And yet let's recall that um, peace and stability has returned to Hong Kong and that Hong Kong has the highest life expectancy of any place in the world. Mm. Uh, we look at the past 10 years, we look at how other countries have, have struggled and faltered and, and indeed failed. Although we've had some setbacks in terms of uh, having to deal with the pandemic and extreme weather and, and other challenges in China, uh, China has continued to move forward. Mm. You, you talked about uh, this uh, anti-corruption campaign, but there are some uh, Western narrative or observers, they say it's just a selective campaign, you know, focusing on some uh, corrupt officials not aligned with um, the general secretary. What's your observation here? Well, I mean, what's the evidence that people have that that's true? If, if we're being rather frank, and, and I think we can be frank, I, I published a paper on this mm. in, in, in Beijing several years ago. We know that before Xi Jinping took power, uh, the party was riven by factions. And these factions had narrowed around special interests in some cases, certain industries, certain regions. 
And they had entrenched themselves uh, in power and, and were loath to change policies. And as a, as a result, a lot of the capacity of the party to govern effectively, to uh, adapt and reform had been diminished. Um, and so, you know, when Xi Jinping took power and initiated this long overdue party rectification campaign, it definitely targeted factions that would not be recognized as being aligned with, with his objectives, right? But that's not the same as targeting people for narrow political, but rather uh, trying to clean up the system overall and uh, reimpose the sort of uh, discipline that is necessary for a system like this to function effectively. And Victor, your observation? Well, first of all, I would say corruption exists wherever there are human beings. That's true. However, one conclusion is obvious and also universal power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, in China, given nature of our system, there is a high concentration of power. Mm. However, philosophically speaking, China's high concentration of power is meant for emancipating more productivity for the overall interest of the people. However, you do have individual members of the Communist Party, individual members of the government, for example, or even alarmingly in the Chinese military or in enterprises of all kinds, you do have individuals who enjoying the high concentration of power uh, start to enrich themselves and their own families, for example, at the expense of public interest. And these are really the corrupt officials which become cancer, preying on the party, preying on the Chinese society at large, and also arousing indignation among the Chinese people. And I would say ever since 1949, when the People's Republic of China was founded, China as a country, China as a government, and the Communist Party of China as a political system have always been fighting against corruption. However, about 10 years ago, when President Xi Jinping became the paramount leader of China, corruption within the party or in the Chinese military uh, have become so much that if they are left as it is, they may eventually bankrupt the CPC or the Chinese government or China as a country. Mm. Therefore, I really applaud President Xi Jinping a great deal and profusely for having demonstrated the courage, the wisdom and the audacity and unrelentless spirit in mobilizing total resources in China to fight off corruption. And the remarks you just now mentioned made by other people are really not reflecting the realities on the ground. I would say China today, if you look at the party and the military and the society at large, is much cleaner than 10 years ago. And corruption no longer really constitutes a major threat to CPC as a party and to China as a country. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I think all this is to a very large extent is attributable to the courage and wisdom and uh, audacity of President Xi Jinping. And if we do not focus on any other things, if we just focus on anti-corruption, I think President Xi Jinping has earned his mark in the Chinese history mm. as being the very decisive leader in fighting off waves of waves of corruption in the party, in the military, in the government. Then what to watch, in your opinion, at this year's party congress? 
Well, I would say if we look at China today, China is already very, very different from China 10 years ago. China now is a, a, a very influential actor on the global stage, ranking number one or number two. But whatever way you use to look at China, China is really already in the center of the global stage. Therefore, China has a lot of responsibilities for the Chinese people, but increasingly large responsibilities on the global stage. China needs to strive for peace and stability, and China needs to be a force for making peace rather than agitating for war. I think all these domestic challenges and international challenges will be talked about by the delegates at the Party Congress, and eventually they will form a new focus in the decisions to be announced by the end of the Congress and reinvigorate the party and the Chinese nation and reorient ourselves in the way of continued reform and uh, uh, opening to the outside world. Sure. And the decisions to be made this year, either relating to how to continue the zero COVID policy, for example, how long they will be continued, how much modification will need to be made, and how to revitalize the Chinese economy, for example, to make sure that China will resume very rapidly mm -hmm. the economic growth in a robust way, and how China versus the rest of the world in terms of foreign trade, in terms of exchanges of people, in terms of what we should do not only to help the fundamental interests of the Chinese people, but also to contribute positively to the interests of people in many other parts of the world, and really how to build up this community of mankind, for example, and how to really put in more vigor to this One Belt, One Road initiative, which to a very large extent was kind of suspended because of disruption of exchanges of people and goods and services between China and the rest of the world, and then how to make sure that all those posturings and pressures and false accusations against China will become less and less significant because mm. those engaging those activities will sooner or later, I believe, realize that it is futile even to try to hold China down and to derail China's economic development. Mm. I would say, all these matters will be on the table for the delegates to talk about. And I'm sure the decisions eventually made at the end of the party Congress will commit China once again to greater reform, more opening to the outside world, and make sure that China will become a major and increasingly more important force for peace and stability and growth. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we're talking about what to expect at the upcoming 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party of China. Yeah, I got a question um, to actually to you, all you three. Uh, you know, General Secretary uh, Xi Jinping is widely expected to, uh, to be re-elected as the party chief, but his third term obviously faces some criticism, especially from the West. But, um, you know, when I asked a taxi driver for, for his opinion on this, he told me um, they just don't want to see China grow stronger. So, um, Victor, what's your opinion on this? I would say the fundamental test of whether someone's leadership is good or not that good is 
in how people look at the achievements the party and the country have made. And in that sense, I think President Xi Jinping has demonstrated to the satisfaction of the majority of the members in the Communist Party of China, as well as to the Chinese people at large, that he is the leader that China needs now. He is the leader who can stand up to defend principle, who can defend the Chinese sovereignty and territorial integrity, who does not blink in front of others who want to impose their views on China or to claim that they have the total truth and China does not have the truth. I think this kind of leadership is exactly what China needs at this very important turn of events in the history for China and in the history for the world at large. Mm. And I think he will not only continue to be the paramount leader of China for the coming five years, if he continues to do great things for China and for world peace, he may serve much longer than just the coming five years. Joseph, your take? Well, you know, as President Xi and others have made uh, clear repeatedly, uh, we are now in a new era, as they like to say, amid changes unseen in a century. Uh, mm. With this, there are many uh, intersecting challenges as well as opportunities that, uh, that need to be addressed. And uh, in this difficult uh, transitional environment, uh, which includes uh, a number of growing existential threats, you know, the CBC has decided that continuity in leadership is preferred. And we've seen this before in other countries. Uh, for example, we can recall um, Franklin Delano uh, uh, Roosevelt's four terms mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, uh, stretching right. from the Great Depression through World War II. And we've seen, you know, in, in the meantime, in the contemporary uh, global political landscape, we've seen countries, uh, including the United States, including Germany, including the UK, that are struggling with political polarization, with new leaders and ineffectual governance all of which is worsening the conditions their people face and compounding international problems. So, of course, um, you know, I think that uh, uh, while we'll see uh, a lot of criticism and, and have already seen a lot of criticism about the prospects of, of a third term, if not more, I don't think Beijing really cares too much about that criticism. Mm. I think they're rather uh, comfortable and confident in their decision and, and where they're going with it. Mm, yeah, that's what I'm asking. If he serves the uh, country well, serves the people well, why can't he continue to be the leader? Look at um, you know Angela Merkel, right? John, your take here? Well, I, I think that, frankly, I think that this conception of two terms, which is just taken from the U.S. Constitution, is completely stupid. Uh, most people have um, are not very concerned. I mean, the average person who's not very concerned about doesn't want to follow politics in the day-to-day basis, not acting politics, has a very simple position. Mm -hmm. If a leader is good, then the leader should stay in, in office as long as possible in order to carry out the things which they've been beneficial for. If they're bad, they should be removed from office as quickly as possible mm -hmm. in order to get rid of them. And we've had in the West some stupid decisions which were taken. For example, why we had the removal of um, Clinton from office and was replaced by a disaster, which is George W. Bush. Why? If Clinton had been allowed to stand, he would have won the election against George W. Bush. George mm. W. Bush then led the United States into the disastrous war in Iraq, which 20 years later, the world has still got to um, recover from. Mm. It's absurd. This just that two terms. It's just the Americans, as Victor said at the beginning, attempting to impose their constitutional system, which I can express my opinion on. I can't change it, but I think it's a very stupid 
mm. uh, system, this limits, mm. uh, trying to impose on other countries. Why, if Xi Jinping is doing a good job, I would think the attitude of the Chinese people would be that he should be in office as long as possible and live a long time. And if somebody, unfortunately, then becomes the leader of China as no good, they should be removed from office as rapidly as possible. <laughs> so this is a uh, completely foolish concept, all this two terms thing, and it's completely uh, silly, and China's completely right on this, and the, the criticisms are completely wrong. But Western Can media... I add to that? Sure. I would, the only thing I would caution there on is that, you know, this two-term policy was not, you know, China emulating the West, but uh, it was a policy that was put in place, formulated uh, during the Deng Xiaoping era. And there were some very good reasons for the policy. Unfortunately, if we, if we take a really hard look at how that policy functioned in terms of uh, uh, moving from the third to the fourth uh, generations of leadership, it did not achieve the desired wholesale change and party rectification campaigns that were necessary to prevent, as, as Victor described, the, the rampant corruption that resulted. Yeah. Um, and we know that, that for the first five years of uh, Xi Jinping's time in power, he was devoted almost exclusively to the anti-corruption drive. And we had to spend that five years to clean up the mess. And of course, you know, you still have to go back to it occasionally. And then, you know, what happens next is right as they're starting to try to, you know, capitalize on these, now that we've cleaned up the party and we can move forward and we've cleaned up the government and we start to put reforms in place, now we're going to start reforming the economy and SOEs. And that's the moment that the U.S. hits with the trade war. That's the moment when these external pressures start trying to you know, derail China's efforts to take bold steps forward. So, you know, what we're seeing, I think, is two or three things happening at, at the same time. One, trying to address what had become institutional limits that were not allowing full effective governance to flower in China. Mm. And so we see uh, an adjustment to those ends. Right. Um, but also we have seen an increasing array of challenges that require uh, good governance and, and a continuity in governance. The key point that I, that I like to come back to again and again is that, you know, the party is 100 million uh, strong, and we know that Xi Jinping is the paramount leader, but uh, the, the nation is bigger than the party and the party is bigger than the man, but collectively they've decided from what we can perceive that this is the direction they want to take. So let them go. Let them do what they want to do. Mm. You're saying there's no problem with a third term for General Secretary Xi, but, uh, you know, the West, especially Western media, is touting this idea that China will, will become more aggressive under his leadership. Then what would be your response to such a question, especially in terms of uh, China's, um, you know, foreign policy? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is defending oneself against aggression is not the same as being aggressive. Furthermore, as we're taught as children in the United States, um, there's a difference between being aggressive and being assertive. China is now being assertive, and that doesn't sit well with American hegemony, mm. uh, which, by the way, is and has long been very aggressive uh, against China and many others around the world. Unfortunately, we're likely to see the U.S. continuing to escalate conflict with China uh, as well as others, and we're unlikely to see China backing down. That's been characteristic of, of Xi Jinping's time in power, and I think it will continue. So, you know, we'll continue to see the U.S. Uh, describing China as aggressive, and we'll continue to see Western leaders and Western media 
personalizing these criticisms by directing them uh, against President Xi. Victor? Well, first of all, I would say whether the top leader will serve two terms or more than two terms is a decision to be made by China itself. No and foreign according to the really Constitution, right. Yeah. Uh, has any justification to interfere in that? And the Constitution can be amended or modified mm. uh, according to the circumstances, for example. Mm. Therefore, I think it's really a futile attempt by certain countries to accuse China of modifying China's constitution, other than, for example, China modify the American constitution. So if we start on the right foot, then all this kind of argument becomes moot and should no longer be, you know, very much asserting themselves when we have many other things in China as well as in the world to talk about. Secondly, I agree with the other panelists I think the fundamentally the litmus test is whether the leader or the government really succeed in their job of serving the people. Now, on the other hand, if you look at the United States, there is no term limit for the justices in the Supreme Court. There is no term limit for the senators or the members of the House of Representatives, for example. And you really need to talk about the so-called term limit in more detailed way as to really muster your own courage to f launch an accusation against a country like China. There is no term limit for the monarchy in the United Kingdom, for example. No term limit for the Pope. I think whatever system it is, whatever constitutional requirements there are, they need to be tested by time, and they also need to generate results for the people. That's the only litmus test which matters. And I hope President Xi Jinping, if he continues to perform well and generate huge results for the Chinese people, then people and the party will want to have him staying on as the top leader in China. Then what do you expect uh, Xi's third term mean for you know, the party and the country? Are, are we going to see more harsher punishment of corrupt officials or anything else? First of all, I think the coming five years will be crucially important for China and for the world. I would say in the five coming years, the disparity between China and the United States in terms of the size of their economies will be narrowed, if not will disappear. That means China in five years' time will achieve more and more parity in terms of the size of the economy. Now, this will be very important. Why? Because I think the United States is confusing two things together. They worry about China's continued economic growth, and they worry that if China surpasses the United States, China wants to be the next top dog in the world, mm -hmm. taking away that position from China. I think China needs to convince the United States on two things. One is that China definitely will continue to grow, and the size of the Chinese economy definitely will outgrow that of the United States, if not in the coming five years, at least before the end of this century, that is before 2030. The other point China needs to emphasize to the United States is that China sees no fun in becoming the next top dog in the world. China wants to deal with the world and all the countries in the world as an equal, rather than try to impose China on top of any other country. And the United States, we do not want to impose our views on the United States. We just want to get along with the United States. 
I believe President Xi Jinping in the coming five years will really refine again, again, and again all these key messages for the Chinese people, as well as for major countries in the world, including especially the United States. And the end result will be, I hope, that while China-U.S. relations are plummeting as we speak and will get worse before it gets better, I hope in five years' time, or at least after 2030, China and the United States will figure out a way to get along with each other, rather than, for example, what the United States is doing today, try to get to China's jugular as if they can hold China down on the ground without consequences. This, I think, will be the most important challenges facing the new leadership after the end of this 20th party congress mm. and uh, john some analysts say you know the party should send a clear message to especially entrepreneurs on on the country's um dynamic uh, zero COVID policy what's your expectation there well i think that china has saved millions of lives through its zero COVID policy <laughs> sorry about that i say one million people have died in the united states more than one million and um if you take the population of China, which is more than four times that of the United States, more than four million people would have died in China, not to mention the many, many more who would have suffered from long COVID and uh, other problems. At a conservative estimate, China's zero COVID policy has saved the lives of four million people in China. This is why the accusations of the United States about human rights, um, China trying to lecture it, are absolutely ridiculous. There is no human right if you're not alive. The number one right of a person is to be alive, and China has protected its population, and the United States has uh, failed to do so. So I think that the zero COVID policy is a, a tremendous success, not to mention all the limitations. You only have to be in country like mine to see many, many, many older people, people with disabilities, etc., are very worried to go out because they know that COVID is around the situation. I know that there are lockdowns in China, but it, these affect small parts of the population, and most of the population is able to go about its business uh, perfectly normally, which is certainly not the case in my country. In fact, at the present time, unfortunately, we're having a further increase in the number of COVID cases. So I think um, the zero COVID policy has been an outstanding success in China from the point of view of fundamental human rights, let alone the health of the population. Do you expect the party, you know, would gradually lift or make adaptation changes after this um, 20th CPC Congress? John? Well, on, on the zero COVID policy, I'm sure they'll continue to follow the situation. I mean, the CPC has confronted tremendous changes. In 1949, China was almost the poorest country in the world. There were only 10 countries in the world with a lower per capita GDP. Now it's achieved moderate prosperity. And uh, by international standards, it's going to become a high income economy within the next uh, five years. So I'm sure all sorts of changes will take place and it'll deal with COVID from that point of view. But from the fundamental policy which is pursued is that of ensuring the health and well-being of the people, what it calls its people-centered development. And that I'm absolutely sure will continue. Mm. Lastly, we go to Joseph, your take on this. Um, what would Xi's uh, third term mean for the party and the whole country? Well, I think that, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the value of continuity is is very apparent. Right. I think that we'll see, as everyone here is aware, we've been to this rodeo several times now, but one of the things that, that we know is that these big party congresses every five years 
have become, you know, events now that people around the world pay attention to. I, I can remember, you know, 15, 20 years ago, not many people really paid attention. There might be, you know, some international media, but there wasn't much discussion. Mm. But there's almost an obsessive uh, discussion now of, of sort of what's happening in Beijing and, and what are the big political developments. And I expect this Congress to not pander to that, but certainly exploit that moment of attention to make some bold pronouncements. And of course, a lot of these will be repeating uh, things that have been developing over the last couple of years. We'll see, they, they know that they'll have a bully pulpit at that moment to talk about uh, core values and key initiatives. A lot of people, a lot of diplomats and others, they contact me and say, who do you think is going to be in the new leadership lineup? I'm not, I'm not really interested in that game. I don't, I don't think that that's what this Congress is really about. Mm. Um, I do think uh, that we're going to see some clear, uh, decisive, uh, or at least I anticipate and hope to see some clear, decisive policies aimed at uh, recovery, but also moving forward with dual circulation. In terms of the zero COVID policy, my sense is, and, and you know, <laughs> I'm in Shanghai right now. Shanghai is fighting an, another outbreak, so mm. we're all a little bit on edge. But the key point here is that um, I think China has made a, a, a significant investment in being able to contain outbreaks. And I think that there's a, a desire to relax the policy as much as possible. Uh, because it feels the burden of the policy. W whatever the benefits of the policy, we all pay a price for it. Beijing certainly understands this and understands that the extent to which they can loosen the policy but also preserve lives is in the best interest of the, of the nation. And, and certainly, if we reflect critically, we know that the policy has loosened and relaxed considerably over the past year, notwithstanding the lockdown that we experienced in Shanghai and that they've experienced in other places. You know, we've seen the quarantine period drop significantly. We've seen uh, much more careful policies in terms of what happens when people get infected and close contacts and all these things and, and international arrivals. So I expect that the policy will continue to be fine-tuned. I don't expect it to disappear altogether. I expect it to relax a little bit more, but uh, be scalable. In other words, if we have some sort of crisis, it can immediately spring into action and do what's necessary to protect people. So that's my uh, my not so clear, but nevertheless optimistic uh, prediction for bold results. Fair enough. We'll have all these answered in the coming week. And with that, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University, and John Ross, Senior Fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. For your insightful views, please feel free to leave a review for us, either on the topic or on the show, and subscribe to the Chat Lounge wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tuyun. Thank you for being with us. See you next time. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.